your supervisors, your managers, they're your allies, right? They're the ones that are on the shop floor. They're the ones that have the closest relationship with the rank and file employees, the potential bargaining unit members. They're the ones that need to be trained to understand what some of the potential signs of unionization are so that they can bring it to your attention so you have an understanding that this is going on even or potentially going on even before the a a union representative brings those signed cards to the National Labor Relations Board. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Following two years of pandemic-related workplace chaos and uncertainty, Many unhappy employees are looking to unions to, they hope, give them more influence on the terms and conditions of their employment. This year, we've seen unionization efforts at large employers like Amazon, Apple, Starbucks, and JetBlue, as well as many lesser recognized employers. And this trend, encouraged by President Biden's very pro-union National Labor Relations Board, shows no sign of slowing down. Joining me today to discuss organizing efforts and employers' practical and legal responses to them is John Hyman. John is chair of the Employment and Labor Practice Group at Wickens Herzer Panza in Avon, Ohio, where he is also co-chair of the Craft Beer Practice Group. He is also the author of one of the few blogs I read every day, the award-winning Ohio Employer Law Blog. Welcome to Good Morning HR, John. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me and having me on. So early in my HR career, a mentor explained to me that the companies that end up getting union organized probably deserved it. And I think her point was that companies that take care of their employees, are respectful to their employees, provide a positive working environment, don't have to fear uh, uh, unions, uh, you know, getting hold in their organization. If it was ever true, uh, do you think it, it, that's still true today? It's absolutely still true today, uh, and maybe more true than ever, given kind of where we've seen the current wave of unionization going. You know, it's interesting. I spoke, I don't know, nine months ago at an at an online craft brewery conference on a top. The topic was. Um, uh, pay equity, pay equality for uh, for brewery employees, and I was on a panel with some other people. And when the my like the advertisement for the session went up on the the sponsors the the, the sponsors Facebook page, all hell broke loose over you know this people who had found me online and said you know you're you're having this union busting attorney, this anti union lawyer come on and talk about, you know, pay equity and pay equality. And, you know, he's clearly anti-employee and, you know, he has no business offering any opinions whatsoever on what's good for employees. And I was like, whoa, let's, you know, let's, let's take a step back. Like you can be anti-union because you believe that unions are not the right vessel, the right tool to 
cure what ails employees and workplaces, but still be pro-employee. You can still believe that there is a right way to treat your employees from a from a culture standpoint, from a pay standpoint, from an equity and equality standpoint, and do all the things that you should be doing as a good employer or as a good corporate citizen to treat your employees the right way um, and still be anti-union. And those two things are not mutually exclusive, um, which is all by way of circling back to say that for those employers that don't get that message, that that treat their employees poorly, that don't pay them a fair wage, that have a culture of abuse and mistreatment, that don't listen to their employees' concerns, that don't give their employees a voice, or at least a, any kind of voice in, in the direction or management of the business and the operations. I mean, they're going to get what they deserve. And those are the workplaces that are 100% plus right for unionization. And I think it's it's incumbent upon employers to uh, now more than ever, given what we're seeing out in the marketplace, to kind of take a look inward and do a little bit of introspective review to say, you know, what kind of employer are we? And if you don't, if you can't check the boxes of being the kind of employer, I mean, I say be an employer of choice for, be an employer of choice for employees, not not an employer of opportunity for unions. If you're not an employer of choice for employees, uh, you got some soul searching to do, especially in the in the current climate. And it's funny that anybody would level that accusation at you because if they look at your blog, you highlight bad employer practices. You call those employers out. You even have the uh, bad employer the the year. Or my worst my my worst my worst employer yeah. award. Yeah, and people always say to me, you know, you're a management side lawyer. Why are you? Why, why do you have a worst employer award? And that's because I'm highlighting the kind of conduct that you don't want to do. Like I've been doing this for 25 years. I know why employers get sued. I know why employers get organized. I know why employers or workplaces turn into revolving doors for employees. It's not what you want for your business. Right. No employer should want to get sued, right? But if you end up on my list of worst employers, uh, you're doing something that's going to get you sued. And so it, it is more of, it's not that I'm being anti-employer or even pro-employee. These are cautionary tales of how not, or just how not to treat your people that that are gonna that are gonna keep you out of court. And look, I mean, if you wanna you wanna pay me 150 grand to defend some awful thing you did, I'll happily take your money. But it's not it's not good for your business, right? It's not good for. I mean, it's you know, it may well be out there on social media uh, and in, in the news media. Uh, it's bad for your PR. It's bad for your employee attracting the kind of people you want uh, to the organization. It's just, I mean, it's the reason we have in good organizations, good HR departments, right, to help you know train and coach managers to to treat people well and to build cultures. Yeah, good good HR departments that actually have a a. a- a seat at the table in the C-suite that that the rest of the C-suite listens to their concerns and listens to them and gives them a voice in how, uh, you know, in how uh, the employment functions in the business are managed. So what do you think is driving this renewed focus by workers on unionization? Uh, I, I've heard more conversation this year than even I, I recall, at least during the Obama administration, which was pretty pro-union. Uh, but it seems really hot, especially the last 18 months. Yeah, I, I think it's a combination of three things. And it's interesting you brought up the Obama administration. Uh, President Biden is by far, 
hands down the most pro union president we've ever had period i mean he's got you know deep blue collar roots from scranton pennsylvania uh he wears those roots he, he doesn't hide those roots he's proud of them and he is unabashedly pro union uh, more than any other president we've ever had but separate and apart from president biden's pro union uh uh, more than leanings, his, his pro, strong pro-union beliefs, and the impact that's having on policy at the National Labor Relations Board, we, we, we can get into some of that. But I think there's two external factors that are, that are at play here too. Um, and, and they kind of play off each other. I, I think one is the pandemic, but more specifically, I think the safety concerns that COVID-19 highlighted in workplaces across America, uh, safety has long been at the top of the hit list of talking points for labor unions. And the COVID pandemic underscored uh, with a uh, with a bold tip Sharpie marker, underscored how employers were failing or how some employers were failing their employees um, health uh, on the health and safety front. I think separate from that or also playing into that, I think the current wave of unionization is largely generationally driven more so than ever before. We're seeing when you look at, you know, workplaces like Starbucks and REI and Trader Joe's, these are, these are young, younger or Apple younger workforces. I think Gen Z is driving a lot of this. And I think, the the activist lessons that Gen Z kind of cut their teeth on and learned through the Black Lives Matters protests, and uh, we've seen it with the uh, you know the post Roe v Wade uh, abortion uh, protests and LGBTQ plus protests and the other kind of social justice issues that have energized and that Gen Z has been able to rally around. I think Gen Z has taken what they've learned in organizing around social justice issues and taken those lessons and turned them inward to the workplace to say, we've been able to make a difference externally on issues that matter to us, but we work 8, 10, 12, whatever hours a day. And so we need to use those same organizing tools to make a difference in our jobs as well. They're mad as hell. And there you go. Take it anymore. Yeah. Uh, which is a reference that many of the Gen Z folks would know, but get. one of the, <laughs> what, a, we watched that movie. in, I took a mass media law course in law school. And I'm, I mean, I've been out of school now for 25 years, but yeah, but we watched that. I had never seen that movie network. I had never seen that before, but we watched it in our, in our mass media law course. And it's a movie uh, for people who haven't seen Network, I'm not sure what service it's streaming on, but you should find it and watch it because it's more relevant now, I think, than it was when it came out in the 70s. And so I know you've represented a number of employers who've been, uh, you know, had various efforts at unionization inside their organizations. Are you seeing that the expectations of the those Gen Z folks or the, you know, these, the activists who are pushing for unionization, I guess the question is two prong. Are they, do they seem to have valid gripes? Uh, and, or is this, 
what you know is this what's often you know you know called or you know are they just being snowflakes uh and not having you know not wanting to get up at, you know to work and go to work every morning uh and are they really catching you know ground with older members of their you know their peers who are of other generations you know gen x uh millennials to answer the second part first i mean i think they are I mean, no union drive is going to succeed. You need a, I mean, there it's a majority vote. And so you do need majority, you, it's a majority rule and you're not going to, you're not going to get that without capturing at least some of the interest and attention from people outside your own demographic. So I think it, th- their message is, I think, catching on. Um, what they really want at the end of the day, I think, is a seat at the table. They want they want to be heard and i think that's what that's what's largely driving this and when we talked about the pandemic earlier i mean they want to be heard on safety issues they want to be heard on equity issues and equality issues they want to be heard on pay issues but i don't some people might disagree but i've never believed and i still don't believe that pay is the driving factor in union organizing um i think it has much more to do with having a voice and being heard and feeling that management is listening to you and taking your concerns seriously and in workplaces where uh, employees don't feel they have a voice or don't feel that management is listening to them or taking their concerns seriously they're going outside the organization to find someone that will listen to them and maybe come in with a, with a bigger stick that's going to get that's going to get their concerns addressed so how has the the Biden in LRB changed the tone from what we had with the Trump and LRB and how is that affecting uh, the success or the progress uh, organizing efforts are having? You know, unions have always, uh, I, I hate to speak in overgeneralizations, but unions have always had the advantage in this process. Um, unions always win more elections than they lose. And the, the election win rates are, are trending up, but not greatly trending up from like the high sixties to the low to mid seventies. So you know, you're at like traditionally unions will win, you know, 65, give or take percent of elections. And now they're winning, you know, maybe 10, eight to 10 points higher. So the the current environment plus the very, very, very friendly year they have at the NLRB has, has helped, but not, you know, but not to a significant degree, but the policy changes that are on, that are, that are on the forefront or are coming down the pike at the NLRB. Um, are significant. So things like um, card check recognition, which is very much on both the NLRB's radar and some legislation that's called the PRO Act that's been kind of bounced around Congress, but given the current climate on Capitol Hill, it has really has no chance of passing. Uh, But it doesn't mean the NLRB can't try to kind of ram it through administratively on its own. Um, We let's back up and talk process a little bit and kind of how a union gets kind of gets in the door and gets started. Unions need signed authorization cards from employees and they only need the, and currently unless an employer voluntarily recognizes a union and there's some, and there are some employers that choose to do that. They're in, in the decided minority. Otherwise it's secret ballot election and a union only needs 30% of signed cards by potential bargaining unit members to get a secret ballot election uh, from a reality standpoint, because it is a majority, uh, it's, you know, majority rules. Unions won't ask for that election unless they have well north of, I mean, 50% plus a lot. I mean, I've seen 
suggestion the number needs to be as high as 70% of signed cards before unions leave and ask for an election. The you know the NLRB very much wants to get rid of secret ballot elections and wants to require employers to recognize and bargain with labor unions just based on the cards themselves, which would eliminate uh, all of the all of the campaigning that goes on once the uh, labor union presents the cards to the to the NLRB and files a petition for that petition for that election and will give the employer um, almost no say in the process. And it's a short window now anyway, so the employer's say is really limited to begin with. The NLRB wants to make other changes like getting rid of what are called captive audience speeches. That is where um, during union organizing before the election, the employer gets all the employees in a room and tells them uh, you know why they think and why the employer thinks they should vote for the employer and not for the not for the union. And there's lots of rules around what can or can't be said, both in those meetings and and just generally during organizing. But the NLRB wants to make those wants to make those meetings um, illegal as a matter of course. Um, you know, the NLRB wants to prohibit employers from telling employees things like if the you know if you vote for the union. You know, we won't be able to deal with you anymore on issues or concerns you have, which is uh, accurate, right? The union, once the union is certified, they become the exclusive representative for employees on issues related to their terms and conditions of employment. And I believe it's accurate for an employer to say, if you vote for the union, you know, you can't come to us anymore to talk about issues or concerns. You're going to have to go through the through your union in a formal process but the NLRB wants to prohibit employers from even having that conversation with employees during election campaigns. So yeah, you as an employee basically become a commodity at that point. I think what gets lost in this process is employees bring a union in because they're tired of dealing with the man, right? The corporation, their employer. What they're really doing is just swapping out one corporate behemoth for another. I mean, the Teamsters, the steel workers, the auto workers, you know, pick your union. They're corporations too, right? They have CEOs who draw big salaries. And even a lot of what we're seeing now, uh, you know, the Starbucks uh, labor union was employee formed and employee, you know, it was formed by, it's an independent union formed by employees. The Amazon workers union, same thing, um, same thing at Apple, Uh or at least some of the Apple stores that are being organized, but they still have the backing and are getting the resources, these big international unions behind them. And so I, I think employees need to realize that, yes, while the union has an obligation to uh, represent you fairly and look out for your interest, uh, there's still a corporation that you're bringing in to, uh, to address those issues for you. So it's not nearly as, you know, grassroots uh, as a lot of people might think. And, I mean, a union is like any other organization. It's, you know, its leaders are going to act in their own interest. Yeah. I, I, I just wrote a story about the, well, they're going to act in their own interest, but they're also going to, they're going to act poorly. I mean, I just wrote, I just wrote a story about a, a lawsuit the EEOC filed against a Teamsters local uh, for uh, pretty egregious sexual harassment committed by the local's business agent. I mean, they, they have the same problems that any business does. And I think it's naive for people to think that um, unions are this 
you know, pure and chaste organization that, uh, you know, flies around the country with its angel wings and its halo, you know, doing good for employees. They, there's good and bad on both sides. And I think the pro union employees that say they may be bullies and they may be, uh, you know, as coercive as the employers, but at least there are bullies. Yeah, there, there are. right. Yeah. Yeah. I I think you're exactly right. So, when should an employer, I mean, let's say, you know, an employer has some group of employees who are, you know, who have decided they want to try to organize and an employer hears that, okay, you know, they're collecting cards and is, when should an employer respond, you know, start their anti-union uh, process you know, is it when you hear that, hey, there's cards here, uh, assuming the employer doesn't have an ongoing thing, so, you know, looking at, you know, getting feedback from employees about their work conditions and, and doing all the things that we would want an employer to do? Yeah, well, the, the, the answer is before right, be, before employees even start signing cards or before the organizer even starts talking to employees, you got to do, as you said, all of the proactive things to, you know, be fair and consistent in how you treat your employees, Um I mean, culture has, I think, to some degree become a four-letter word to a lot of people, but it really is all about culture. And so that's that's before. But then once you get whiff, and this is where a little bit of training here goes a long way, your supervisors who the National Labor Relations Act says as a matter of statute cannot be in a labor union. If you're a, su- if you're a statutory supervisor, you cannot be in a union. Your supervisors, your managers, they're your allies, right? They're the ones that are on the shop floor. They're the ones that have the closest relationship with the rank and file employees, the potential bargaining unit members. They're the ones that need to be trained to understand what some of the potential signs of unionization are so that they can bring it to your attention so you have an understanding that this is going on even or potentially going on even before the a a union representative brings those signed cards to the National Labor Relations Board so it's things like you know are there Strain, you know, are there people you don't recognize out in the parking lot handing out literature? Do you see, you know, potential things that could look like union literature, you know, in the break room or the lunchroom? Are there groups of employees that don't normally socialize with each other sitting, you know, having a smoke together or having lunch together? Weird combinations of employees. Are there social functions after work that, you would normally be invited to as a supervisor that you're not, you're being excluded from, right? The employees don't want you there. Things that might, they might be innocent, right? Uh, but they might be a sign that a union organizer was talking to your employees. So things for the supervisor to really, supervisors, managers, to understand they need to be looking out for these things, but then also know what they're looking for and then what to do with that information, which is go, right, run it, run it, up, the, run it up the chain when they, when they think that's going on. So in your experience, how often does the the card collection process go undetected by an employer? And so they're just completely flabbergasted when they're presented. Uh, more, more often than you would think. Yeah, more often than you would think because that's the, – the union organizers are very are, – are highly skilled at um, 
you know, keeping this information uh, as close to the vest as possible. Um, I didn't mention social media, but that's where a lot of this, that's where a lot of this, the current organizing is happening as well. So on Facebook pages, um, you know, through TikTok, (laughs) through TikTok videos and Instagram, you know, Instagram reels. Um, so keeping an eye on what's going on out on the, you know, out on the social web as well. Uh, but it goes undetected, uh, more than it should because businesses don't know what to look for, don't know they should be looking for it. And, the unions really, they have a vested interest. I mean, they have the element of surprise. They don't want you, they don't want you talking to your employees any earlier than you have to about these issues. And so they they want they want as short a time as possible between when the employer finds out that organizing is going on and when the and when the election is is held by the by the board. Um, and everything the union can do to keep that time frame as short and compacted as possible, the better for the union because it's, they might be taught, they might've been talking to your employees for six months. You may only have a matter, you as the employer may only have a matter of weeks to get your message out. So it is um, more often than not, but it's, it's definitely by design. Are unions using salts still? Are they sending people into workplaces as employees uh, for the sole purpose of trying to organize the workplace? Or is that something we saw in, in an industrial environment 30 years ago? Nope, still happening. Yeah, still happening. Still very much part of the union playbook. Union, still very much part of the union playbook. Um, yeah, salts are employees who. Um, get hired on to a company for the sole purpose of conducting organizing activity within that company. Um, as long as there is a bona fide position that they're applying for, um, and they actually do the work once they're hired, there's not much a company can do about it. They're once they're hired, they're an employee. If you think they're assault, if they express a bona fide interest in the job, you can't. It would be discrimination in violation of the National Labor Relations Act to refuse them employment just because of their status or suspected status as assault. Um, and as long as they're doing the job once they're hired, you really can't do a whole lot about it, at least not without violating the act. They have a lot of protections, um, but that is still very much going on, yes. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for three quarters of an hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select Episode 67 and enter the keyword Union. That's U-N-I-O-N. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit, and one qualifies for ethics credit. You can access all of these webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with John Hyman. So when those uh, frontline supervisors, let's say they rec- their radar, you know, their spidey sense goes off and there's something weird here. You know, the, the mailroom employees are having lunch with, uh, you know, the, uh, the shop floor employees. And uh, that's not something we've seen before. Or, hey, I found this flyer on the, in the bathroom. Um, what should an empl- you know, and, you know, what should the employer do when they first get wind that there's a collection, a card collection activity going on? Call your labor lawyer. 
that's okay. I mean that that is I mean that is I, I don't it's it's kind of half tongue in cheek and or it's fifty percent tongue in cheek fifty percent kind of marketing and fifty percent like factual right I mean sure. it's it's uh, you you got you got to call your labor lawyer there are so many there are so many ways as an employer to screw this up and if you screw it up you could win an election but have the NLR have the NLRB order that the election be reheld because of an unfair labor practice you committed in what you communicated or what you did during you know during the pre-election phase or in the worst case scenario because the NLRB requires that these elections be held in what it calls laboratory conditions you think of like a medical or a scientific lab um pure clean uh sterile the NLRB wants these union elections to be held in the same type of laboratory conditions, pure, clean, sterile, free from unfair labor practice charges. If the NLRB concludes that it can't rerun an election under laboratory conditions because of something that an employer did illegally or unlawfully during the pre-election campaign, the NLRB could just institute a bargaining order to say we we can't have a fair election here. So employer, you did X, Y, or Z. Therefore, we're just going to um, order that you, or we're going to certify this union as the bargaining rep of your of this group of employees, and we're going to order you to bargain with these employees. And that is, I mean, that's a union organizing death sentence for an employer, but it's possible and it happens. Um, and we're going to see. Uh, this current board, I think, use uh, we've already we've already seen them exercising their injunction powers in cases, and we're going to see them, I think, start issuing more bargaining orders as well. So, based on unfair labor practices uh, that it finds during um, during organizing campaigns, so really, really important to get the messaging and the actions right, and you can't do that. Um, Unless you're unless you're a trained labor relations professional, you really can't do that without having your labor counsel involved. And, and you know, and the other fact that comes into play here is that you know, human resources is really it, it, they are the party that's on the front lines here with all of this. But you know, we're seeing we're, we're seeing organizing at a level that we haven't seen in not just a generation but in generations, and HR professionals. Uh, don't have most don't have any experience in this world dealing with labor unions and so you know you are you are dealing with union organizers this is their this is their full-time job is to go into businesses talk to employees and get them to vote for the union uh that is that's their full-time profession as an hr professional not only is it not your full-time profession, but you have zero experience. And so you got to get the lawyers involved as early as possible so you can be trained and really intimately understand what you can or can't say and do during these during these campaigns. And I want to talk about those unfair labor practices. But first, on the union side, what can or can't a union organizer do? while they're trying to to gain support for the union. I mean they can uh, this is going to sound a little more tongue in cheek than it maybe is intended or is or is is in practice but they can I, I think they can really do whatever they want. I mean they can't lie cheat or steal but but they 
but they can they can stretch things pretty darn far you know what they say to employees you know they can you know they can they can give out gifts for example you not not to the not to the substance of it being an out and out bribe um but including marijuana right including marijuana we saw that we saw that uh we saw that at the amazon distribution facility in staten island including marijuana it is you know union organizers i mean they can take the employees out to bars they can you know they set up meals they gave out free pot uh they they can really do uh they can really they can certainly say and do a lot more than the employee than the employers can so what are some of the things, just the highlights? I mean, I, I, I totally agree. You don't want to do you know, surgery on yourself and you want to, you know, you want to bring in a surgeon who really knows what they're doing to, to, you know, to help uh, with that. And same for, you know, uh, an organizing drive. The, uh, but what are the highlights of what an employer can or can't do uh, in, uh, in, you know, once they know that there's a, an organizing drive going on? Yeah. In terms of what you can't do, um, the acronym, uh, is tips, T I P S. So you can't threaten, you can't interrogate, you can't promise, and you can't surveil. So you can't threaten employees about what will happen, uh, if the union wins the election. So you can't tell them we're going to close the plant. You can't tell them we're going to have to lay people off. You can't tell them we're going to cut pay or benefits. Um, you certainly can't retaliate, right? You can't threaten, um, uh, with job loss, and you certainly can't uh, retaliate against employees who um, uh, support the union by uh, demotion, suspension, cuts in pay, uh, or or termination of employment. Uh, you can't interrogate employees about their support of the union. You can't poll employees um, or ask who has received an authorization card or who signed an authorization card. Uh, you can't make promises to employees. Um, and this is the one that I think trips up employers the most because it's the most nuanced. It's the most nuanced. You can't, in terms of making promises, so you can't make explicit promises like, um, uh, we're going to give you more pay. We're going to give you more. We're going to give you greater benefits. Um, we're going to, you know, if you vote no, we'll promote you or we'll, you know, give you, do X, Y, or Z for you. The other thing that falls under the category of promises is um, adjustment of grievances. So during organizing, you can't ask employees to, like, what are your problems? Um, how can we help you? Um, you know, what are your concerns or the things we can do for you to make your workplace better? Because the implied in those questions is your, you know, we're going to fix this for you. Uh, before you even vote for the union. So if you vote union no, you know, we're we're gonna make your workplace better for you. Um, and then you can't surveil or spy on employees. You can't watch who goes into union meetings, you can't attend union meetings and take notes or make recordings. Um, you can't eavesdrop on employee conversations, you can't hack into, you know, you can't hack into email and things, you know, and things like that. So threaten, interrogate, promise, surveil the four big no-nos during union organizing. One of the the few actual decisions that have come out of the NLRB, uh, you know, it's newly constituted under uh, the Biden administration, has been the Tesla decision about dress codes uh, and how that affects, uh, you know, what an employer can or can't dictate uh, about 
you know, what insignia an employee can wear. Will you talk a little bit more about that and how, how Tesla, according to the NLRB got that wrong? Yeah. So, um, the, the, um, Tesla employees, well, Tesla, one of their production facilities in California, um, was organizing, um, they, they, pre-organization and throughout the organ and throughout the organizing drive, Tesla had a very specific dress code in that particular, I don't know if it was company wide or just in that particular production facility, but they had to wear, um, black cotton shirts with the Tesla logo and then black cotton pants with no buttons, um, rivets or exposed zippers with the no buttons, rivets or zippers was so that they didn't scratch the cars that were coming down the production line. And then Tesla gave all this stuff to, um, uh, to the employees to wear. United Auto Workers starts organizing the employees at this production facility and gave out to the employees uh, black t-shirts to wear that had the logo driving a fair future at Tesla along with the UAW's logo. Tesla banned the shirts uh, as for violating their, their dress code that called for just a, a plain black cotton t-shirt with the Tesla logo on it. We said that that's our dress code and you can't wear these shirts that say driving a fair future um, at Tesla. The NLRB said that prohibiting the black shirts with the UAW's logo and slogan on it was an unfair labor practice, violated the employee's rights to engage in what's called protected concerted activity, their right to essentially their right to support the union while at work. Um, and what the NLRB said was, was that you are interfering with employees' rights. Uh, they have a right to display a union insignia outside of work and inside of work uh, on their clothing. And you, employer, violate or interfere with their right to wear their union insignia unless you can demonstrate or establish some special circumstances that outweigh the employee's right to wear that insignia or logo um, at work. And so the board said things like, you know, a risk to employee safety or the potential to damage machinery or, you know, maybe, you know, making dissension or fights among employees worse, um, or if necessary to maintain decorum or discipline within the workplace, those would be special circumstances that might justify a prohibition on union insignias in the workplace. But absent that absent, absent those special circumstances, um, uh, employer, the NLRB says you cannot prohibit employees from wearing union union insignia while, you know, while working. And you mentioned the, the captain captive audience presentations and, the NLRB doesn't like them and may may do you know has rumbled that they may do something about that, I guess. But right now that's legal, right? We can we can drag all our employees into a conference room and and tell them why they don't want a union. We can't promise them, we can't tell them you're gonna lose your job or anything like this, but you know, this will interject somebody between you and the employer and we, you know, we don't think that's in your best interest. Yeah, you you can do it. I, I question in the current. I, I have questioned for the past you know twelve months or so whether the the old anti organizing playbook that employers use is still a valid playbook in the current during the current wave of unionization. 
I, I question whether the or the the anti-union tactics that worked five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, fifty years ago still work today. Because what you see now is, you know, employees get dragged into captive audience speeches, get held there for fifteen minutes, thirty minutes, sixty minutes, and listen to a CEO, a COO, a general manager, whoever, you know, give their spiel about why employees shouldn't vote for the union and all valid re- all valid reasons and hopefully, you know, written by someone like me and you know they're giving legal content to the employees, but then you have the employees, you know, recording it and putting it up on TikTok or you have the local union's Twitter account is, you know, live tweeting the captive audience speech or you have pro-union blogs or pro-union podcasts, of which there are several, um, you know, reporting on what's going on. And I think sometimes, and I think particularly under the current wave of unionization, probably more often than not, the actions that employers are taking are kind of like proof of concept for the, for the unions. It's, this is the union says, this is why you need a union because you don't have a voice with management. They're making decisions for you. They don't take you seriously. They don't respect you. And then you're you know, metaphorically, the, the employees are metaphorically, you know, locked in a room for an hour, lectured, you know, by their stepdad or their big brother or whoever, and told all the reasons why uh, they shouldn't vote for the union and why the union's bad for them. And the union's like, see, look, this is exactly what we're talking about. So I think, by and large, a lot of the the old, and I, I call them old school, you know, old school, you know, anti-union tactics are really proof of concept for the for the for the labor unions, and which is why I, I believe that employers should be adopting a different type of approach. It's a much more employee-focused approach, and it really is an approach that has to start as I said earlier, before the union even comes in, it's, it's, it's really a focus on culture and, you know, why, you know, why are we, why should we be an employer of choice for our employees? And so that kind of, it's that kind of introspection that's going to work the best. And in this particular climate, and while employers are winning elections, um, sometimes I think, you are so far behind the eight ball when a union comes in that I'm not saying you fold up the tent and just recognize them because you, you you should fight the fight, um, but but you are you are as an employer definitely fighting an uphill battle, particularly in front of this board. And I think you said although they only need what thirty percent of of uh, cards for thirty percent of of the the workforce right. that they're organizing. Yeah, to hold to, get, to to hold the election right. Yeah, but they're really. Even now, they're getting fifty percent before seventy percent. Yeah, fifty percent, yeah. well north of fifty percent, because they want they they don't the unions don't want to put their resources behind elections they can't win, um, and if they can't even get fifty percent of the card signed, they have no hope of getting fifty percent of the employees to vote for the union. So, so they're gonna they want to they want to know they have a good chance to win before they even before they even submit the cards. And I'm sure they're not supposed to, but they can or they do, you know, general, you know, they do maybe not threaten with violence, but threaten with ostracism in the workplace and, and pressure 
on on individuals to sign those cards or to participate and they want to see them sign them in person things like that and so they put pressure on those employees tremendous amount of pressure you're letting right you're letting your coworkers down um yeah i mean they they will they'll show up at they'll show up at employees homes they will call them on the telephone their inboxes will get bombarded they'll get the social media messages you know they're hearing it from the organizers they're hearing it from their coworkers it is a tremendous amount of both peer pressure and external pressure to sign those cards and um sometimes you know what employees you know employees aren't given the whole story by the union as to what as to what those cards mean too right it is you know you are employees may not understand that by signing the cards they are signing uh, something that is going to give the union the right to hold the secret ballot election. They're they're told things like, you know, you sign this. You know, people don't always read what they sign. I'm I'm a lawyer. And I don't always read what I sign, right? So, you know, it's uh, you know, you are, you know, you support the, you know, you think unions have the right to exist. Just sign here or you know whatever. But there are the the messaging around authorization cards isn't always accurate from unions and when you get the inaccurate messaging with the pressure uh that employees get to sign those cards it it makes it very difficult for employees to say no and that pressure is not just in the workplace though they can show up at an employee's home uh and and do other things that if the employer did it it would certainly seem coercive it would it would be coercive right Right, but now you have some guy, some some union guy you've never met, who you don't even know how he got your address, shows up at your door at nine o'clock at night uh, with a clipboard and says, "Sign here," and you're like, "Holy, God, this guy knows where I live." Yeah, you'll sign to get rid of him. Yeah, that's a nice car you've got in the parking lot. I'd hate to see something happen. <laughs> it would, to it. If, yes, yeah, it was. Geez, <laughs> new new ti- new tires are expensive. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're almost out of time, but. What do you think is going to happen with Browning Ferris if it hadn't already happened already? I mean, you know, this this idea that I've got, you know, so many employers are relying, especially for labor, for on contractors and agencies to provide, you know, to supply labor. Um, If I'm an employer in that environment, how much more risk am I or less, you know, know, what's is it the same risk uh, as as if these were all my regular employees? Yeah, so Browning Ferris is the NLRB's decision from several years ago that liberalized the board's joint employer standard. If you're a joint employer uh, with another employer, then you are jointly and severally liable for the legal wrongdoings of the other employer. The Trump board uh, correctly uh, overturned Browning Ferris, and now the current board has said we're going to go back to a slightly modified version of that, but we're essentially Traditionally, the NLRB required that an, that a, an organization exercise direct control over the terms and conditions of someone's employment in order to be deemed a joint employer. Um, now, under these uh, proposed regulations that the NLRB has uh, put forth a couple of weeks ago, uh, if those regulations um, become final, which I expect they will, uh, as long as employers kind of indirectly exercise control or reserve control over the terms and conditions of employment, um, they're going to be a joint employer. And it's it's going to greatly expand the scope of liability for businesses. Um, things like uh, potentially franchisors becoming 
liable for not just liable for the legal wrongs of their independent franchisees, but also because we're talking about the National Labor Relations Act here, uh, there's an also the, there will also be a joint bargaining obligation. And if I'm, I always use I like to use kind of McDonald's as the stalwart example here because they're the biggest example of a franchisor that we have. But if I'm McDonald's and I am a joint employer with my independent franchisees because of some of the control that I exert in my franchise agreement over the items on the menu and how things are cooked and the uniforms that employees wear, if I'm McDonald's and I'm going to be jointly and severally liable for the legal wrongs of my franchisee that I had nothing to do with and no control over. And on top of that, I now have to sit down at the bargaining table and bargain over the terms and conditions of employment with my franch for my franchisees employee employees. I'm like the hell with it. I just might as well I'm gonna I might as well own these stores myself and at least control the risk. So uh, real risk for the franchise model, I think, in the U.S. in general, but it's a great expansion of what liability means under the National Labor Relations Act, and we're going to see it as well under uh, Fair Labor Standards Act and Family Medical Leave Act and Title VII and every other law that that um, they are the the other agencies after Browning Ferris they they were the they they were the tail that wagged the NLRB's dog, and we're we're going to see it here too. Well, that's all the time we have today. There's a lot more to talk about. I had hoped we'd get to Weingarten and what that means for employers under this NLRB, but maybe we'll have, we'll have you back, I hope, John. Sounds good. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.